you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Okay. All right, so we are going and I hear you have something exciting for us. I do have something exciting. But before I get into that, just a little rundown of what we do here on the Maniculum Podcast. We take a medieval text that we think is really fun or weird or we happen upon it and there's something interesting in it. And we contextualize it for you guys who don't necessarily have access to years of university education and student debt. And... We turn it into information that you can use for your D&D game, for your papers, if you are in academia, or for storytelling of any sort. So that's what we do. And this also applies if you do have years of university education and student debt, but put them into something more productive than we did. Fair enough. Yeah. It's for all who find this sort of thing interesting. But anyway, we turn weird medieval stuff into ideas that you can use without having to go through years of that. But anyway, we are getting into dragons today. I'm very excited to talk about dragons. <laughs> I'm trying to like think of our little list that we go down. Yes, we have social media. Come follow us on social media. It's fun. We have a good time. We have a Discord. Uh, oh, and thanks to our Discord and our supporters on Patreon, we have decided, since by popular vote, you all really liked our Perlis Vow series, which has come to a close. We are going to pick up with a Viking saga. It's going to be, uh, I'm going to say his name incorrectly, Aik? Aik saga? It looks like Eggle. It's, it's filed Aik. under Socrates. <laughs> yeah, Socrates. And Beethoven, of course. No, it's a E-G-I-L, which depending yep. on who you ask is pronounced ale or possibly ait. Ech. Either way, it's a fantastic saga. Uh, if you like Game of Thrones or if you liked Game of Thrones before it went bad, you will enjoy this saga. So please come along for the journey. Uh, and for all the commentary and fun, join our Discord. And for extra content, check out our Patreon. Uh, but anyway... Yes, and also, if you don't like the long series as much as our Discord people do, let us know that, too. It's good oh, to yeah, know absolutely. Like, who likes what and what we should do. We do take suggestions. We take mm -hmm. uh, feedback. We do take feedback. We are academics. We're very good at taking feedback. Well, no, let me rephrase. We are students. We are very good at taking feedback. Academics at large, it's a toss-up. We mostly accept feedback when it's written in red pen on the podcast. So if you can figure out a way to do that, we will definitely listen to you. I want a special font and color system for the iPod or podcast reviews on the iTunes store. Mm -hmm. All in red. Anyway. By the way, leave us a review on the iTunes store. Apparently that helps grow podcasts. It does. But yeah, anyway, aside from this very long introduction, dragons. We're going to talk about dragons today. So let me pull my notes up. Dragons have a very long and worldwide history. Today I will be talking about one specific dragon that has existed throughout history. And you're probably thinking of Smaug. He's very connected to Smaug, actually. It is not the dragon from Beowulf, though I do love Beowulf very much. No, this week we are looking at the lay of Fafnir, which is one of the oldest dragon myths in the world. I like the phrasing existed throughout history because now I'm imagining like Fafnir fought in World War One. <laughs> he was there with the U-boats, taking him out. 
Yeah, he probably... Oh, he's taking him out. He's German. I would have assumed he'd be on the wrong side of both of those wars. I mean... Oh, yeah, I guess... Yeah, he is a German dragon. Well, I mean... Well, he's also a dragon. I feel like he would just go after whatever's in the ocean, and yeah. German U-boats were very common. Well, semi-common. I'm not a I'm not a World War II historian. Don't come at me. Also, the category German is pretty arbitrary Modern. and wouldn't mean anything to Fafnir because he existed pre there being a Germany. Yeah, we can say he true. was Germanic or or Germanic. Anyway, this story was first written down in the Poetic Edda which was compiled by Snorri Sturluson. I guess written by Snorri Sturluson as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's funky. Mac, you know more about this than I do. Ah, oh, you're throwing to me again. Uh, so what do, what do you want me to say? <laughs> well, I'll, okay, I'll get, into the, I'll get into the Edda later. But anyway, Fafnir has existed in the Poetic Edda, in the Volsunga Saga, or the Saga of the Volsungs, the Nibelungenlied, which is a very complex German word for me, which, oh, and it's also in the 19th century opera Der Rings der Nibelungen, the 1890 Red Fairy book of children's stories, and Fritz Lang's 1924 film Die Nibelungen, and many, many other texts besides. Fafnir is a very, very old dragon that has a very rich history, which coincidentally, actually, the film, the 1924 film, does have interesting ties to pro-nazi propaganda at the time again this was before world war ii but the filmmaker himself is a very complex figure and the hero sigurd who slays fafnir has been tied up with all of the aryan ideas of what a german man should be or you know what a european should be i think this is why i think of fafnir as german because all of that like material was basically Hijacked. appropriated yeah 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 absolutely in the early um, 20th century by by germans for aryany stuff exactly and so i just associate them in my mind which is what they wanted so i should stop doing that well, to be fair, the Nibelungenlied itself is a medieval German work. So Fafnir himself is still a German dragon, and then later it was appropriated. So he is both Norse and German. But we're getting into overly complex stuff. Uh, I'm less interested in that more modern history, but we will provide sources for that if you are interested. And you can actually watch the 1924 film on YouTube. It's actually really cool, very fun. It's a giant animatronic dragon from the 1920s. It's so cool. So anyway, at least look that up because it's really fun. But yeah, I'm going to focus more on the medieval texts themselves than their more modern renditions. So as we go through all of these sources, you're going to start to see some weird, interesting trends that will be pretty familiar to you. Hollywood and, of course, my boy Tolkien have used them and still use them to this day. <laughs> what are you, <laughs> you grimacing over my use of my boy? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and Tolkien was actually incredibly upset at the hijacking of this sort of history. That's right. I think we've mentioned his letter before when uh, yes. someone someone wrote to him to ask about translating The Hobbit into German and wanted to make sure he wasn't Jewish first, and he was extremely salty about it. Yeah. Like, chewed them out for the misuse of the term Aryan. I think he also called 
Hitler, like, the little fat man or something. Like, there was some, he called him some very crude term about him hijacking Western history. (laughs) Which he did, but regardless. You're going to start to see some interesting themes that I won't say what they are right now, because hopefully you'll be able to pick up on them. I'm sure you'll be able to pick up on them. And then we'll cover them a little bit later. So, the earliest source we have for the Lay of Fafnir is Snorri Sturluson's Poetic Edda. So there's the prose edda and the poetic edda, and obviously one is in prose format and the other is in poetry. And how would you describe these, Mac? They're sort of compiled old stories and then formalized into poems. And these poems were more about crafting good poetry than recording any kind of history or myth. So people like to look at the edda or eddas as like the bastion of Norse myth, because they have a lot of stories about Loki and Odin and Baldur and so on. But really, that was not their purpose. No, but they are the best we have. They are the best we have, but they are not really accurate depictions of what ritual worship or any kind of worship for that matter would have looked like. In fact, isn't there isn't there one of them that goes through like kennings of Odin's name. Like how many Mm -hmm. ways can you call Odin Odin, but not by his name? So he lost one eye. So you might call him the one-eyed one or, you know, whatever. There are some pretty interesting kennings for for Odin. Yeah. Also, I don't know if the poetic Edda is also by Snorri Sturluson or not. I know the prose one is, but I thought the poetic one was anonymous. Was it? I was always told that it was Snorri. I could just be making that up in my head, though. (gasps) Ah. associated with it. Hang on, hang on, I need to know. Anonymous narrative poems. Ah, yes, you were correct. I am incorrect. Alas, I mix them up in my head. Thank you for correcting me. You're welcome, I think. I still don't know 100% (laughs) whether I'm correct, but Wikipedia says they're anonymous, so Ah. I don't have a better source than Wikipedia right now. Well, then I wrote my notes down wrong in university. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) I probably got a question wrong on a on a test for that. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a compilation of old Norse poetry that contains pretty much what we have of Norse mythology because a lot of it didn't get written down properly and right. unfortunately the poetic edda I think is written after uh, yes. Norse paganism was a thing so it's not even really a good it's not a reliable source. Yeah, the, the 1270s source. is is the Codex Regius, which is where it um, exists as a text. Yes. Which is an Icelandic manuscript. Yeah, Icelandic medieval manuscript known as the Codex Regius. I'm going to put away Wikipedia before I get sucked <laughs> down a rabbit hole. <laughs> See also. <laughs> but yeah, Zoe's uh, summation of, of the Eddas is most most of what I would have to say about it. It's our it's our Norse mythology material all put together, and at the prose edda, at least, is definitely written by Snorri Sturluson and intended yes. for use to guide people in how to compile poetry more than as an actual repository of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I thought we would go ahead and read The Lay of Fafnir in its most obscure and weirdest form, because Norse poetry is almost impenetrably thick. And then go into some of its other renditions in the Volsunga Saga, mainly the Volsunga Saga, and then sort of summarize what it looks like and what it transformed into with the Nibelungen Lied. Okay. All right. So let me pull up my 
And there is another poem that comes just before this one called The Ballad of Regan, which I am not going to read in its poetic form, but I will read it as a part of the Volsunga saga. The two generally are considered to be read together because their stories kind of narratively flow. So if there, if you feel like there's something missing in this first one, don't worry, we will cover it. So, And I'm ready to be surprised because even though I have read uh, the Poetic Edda and the Volsunga Saga, I have the type of memory where I can read a whodunit twice and be wrong both times. So... <laughs> Haven't you translated one of these? No, I translated Greta Saga. Oh, okay. That's better than the poetry. I would die if I had to do Norse poetry. We did do some poetry, and I think we did did do bits of one of the Eddas in, in the class I took on translating Old Norse, but... Oh, better you than me. I'll stick with my Old English. It's much easier. It is easier. All right, so here we go. In this text, Sigurd is called Sigurth, and later he will be Siegfried in the Nibelungenlied. So bear with these various texts. They've all changed over the course of the millennia they've existed. We can just call him Siggy. <laughs> that would be interesting. Well, all if right. we start calling him Siegfried, I'm going to expect some white tigers and stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, here we go. Sigurd and Regan went up to... That's a horrifying word. We're off to a great start. Gintahith. And found there the track that Fafnir made when he crawled to water. Then Sigurd made a great trench across the path and took his place therein. When Fafnir crawled from his gold, he blew out venom, and it ran down from above on Sigurd's head. But when Fafnir crawled over the trench, Sigurd thrust his sword into his body, to the heart. Fafnir writhed and struck out with his head and tail. Sigurd leaped from the trench, and each looked at the other. Fafnir said, Youth, O oh youth, of whom then, youth, art thou born? Say whose son thou art, who in Fafnir's blood thy bright blade reddened and struck thy sword to my heart. Sigurd concealed his name, because it was believed in olden times that the word of a dying man might have great power if he cursed his foe by name. He said, The noble heart, my name, and I go a motherless man abroad, father I had not, as others have, and lonely ever I live. Fafnir spoke, If father thou hadst not, as others have, by what wonder wast thou born? Though thy name on the day of my death thou hidest, thou know, now thou dost lie. Sigurd spoke, My race, methinks, is unknown to thee, and so I am myself. Sigurd is my name, and I am Sigmund's son, who smote thee thus with the sword. Fafnir spoke, Who drove thee on? Why were thou driven, my life to make me lose? A father brave had the bright-eyed youth, and bold in boyhood thou art. This is a very long conversation from someone who's just been stabbed in the heart. I mean, we've seen this many times. We saw this with the toy in Bakuling. Yeah, I know. I just I just have to call it out at some oh, point. Every time it's very fun. We also see it in the Iliad, the Odyssey, and so on and so forth. It's one of my favorite parts of these poems. It always makes me think of a stage play where someone's dying out on stage giving a monologue. It's the mm -hmm. most dramatic thing ever, and I love it. Sigurd spake. My heart did drive me, my hand fulfilled, and my shining sword so sharp. Few are keen when old age comes, who timid in boyhood be. And if you're thinking that this is very complex and the words are backward, you are correct. This is because this is a translation from the 1800s. But note... 
Mark Privy <laughs> that the original is just as bad because that is what Nordic poetry does. Norse poetry has this very thorough disregard for word order. Everything's basically in whatever order makes the meter work. Exactly. Just like Latin. I will take your word for it. I know nothing of Latin poetry. (laughs) I did not like translating the Aeneid. That was not very fun. Better you than me. Yeah, for real. Anyway, it's Fafnir's turn. If thou mightiest grow thy friends among, one might see you fiercely fight. But bound you are, and in battle taken, and to fear are prisoners prone. Sigurd. You blame me, Fafnir, that I see from afar the wealth that my father's was. Not bound I am, though in battle taken. Thou hast found that free I live, Fafnir. In all I say, dost thou hatred see? Yet truth alone I do tell. The sounding gold, the glow red wealth, and rings thy bane shall be. So, some of you who are keeping up with this might notice that this is a curse over treasure. Also, I just really like the image of glow red wealth. Yeah, they do have a lot of reddish gold in these uh, imageries. Mm-hmm. Sigurd's imageries, turn. That's probably not the right word. <laughs> Sigurd. Someone the horde shall ever hold till the destined day shall come. For a time there is when every man shall journey hence to hell. Fafnir. The fate of the Norns before the headland thou findest and doom of a fool. In water shalt drown if thou row against the wind. All danger is near to death. Sigurd. Tell me then, Fafnir, for thou art wise and famed, and much thou knowest now. Who are the Norns who are helpful in need, and the babe from the mother bring? Fafnir. Of many births the Norns must be. Nor one in race they were, some to gods, others to elves are kin, and Valin's daughters some. Sigurd spoke. Tell me then, Fafnir, for thou art wise and famed, and much thou knowest now. How call they the isle where all gods, and cert shall sword sweat mingle? Fafnir spoke. Osk- oh wow. Oskopnir. Oskopnir it is. Where all the gods shall seek the play of swords, Bill Ross breaks when they cross that bridge, and the steeds shall swim in the flood. The fear helm I wore to affright mankind while guarding my gold I lay. Mightier seemed I than any man, for fiercer never I found. If you think it's odd that Sigurd is quizzing Fafnir, it is, but it's also a trope in Norse poetry. Or at least the in, in the poetic Edda itself, there's a lot of, like, do you know, O oh wise one, this trivia about Ragnarok? Mm-hmm. One might even call them riddles. Oh. It's a special skill that'll help us later. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sigurd. The fear helm surely no man shields when he faces a valiant foe. Oft one finds when the foe he meets that he is not bravest of all. Fafnir. Venom I breathed when bright I lay by the horde my father had. There was none so mighty as dared meet me, and weapons nor wiles I feared. Sigurd. Glittering worm, thy hissing was great, and hard did show thy heart, but hatred more have the sons of men for him who owns the helm. So they're fighting over this screeching helmet. Did you say a screeching helmet? Yes, it apparently screams, which we have also seen before in the toying. How cute it is. It's weird what's the same, and it always makes me wonder if it's like cross-cultural transmission or if they just came up with the same idea. 
I tend to go with the like folklorist idea of there are these root stories and they mm-hmm. transform as the oral tradition transforms. And that's why sometimes we see similar motifs far apart because that's cooler. I don't know it if I can cooler. support it like intellectually because I'm not a folklorist. I can't back it up, but it sounds super <laughs> cool. I don't know. It feels right to me. Yeah. Like when you're writing it, at least to me, it feels like you're tapping into something really old. Like you're not creating something. You're you're not creating something original. You know, you're you're spinning a riff on something that's already been done. You're singing a new verse to a really long song. Mm-hmm. You know, you're tapping into something really, really, really old. So I like that interpretation. All right, here we go. It's Fafnir's turn. I counsel thee, Sigurth, heed my speech, and ride thou homeward hence, the sounding gold, the glow-red wealth, and the rings thy bane shall be. I feel like you read that one already. I didn't. It's it's a uh, refrain. Oh. Apparently. Breaking out the technical terms here, I see. Oh, ho, ho. And Sigurd speaks. Thy counsel is given, but go I shall to the gold in the heather hidden, and Fafnir, you, with death dost fight, lying where hell shall have thee. Fafnir. Regan betrayed me, and you will betray. That is to say, Regan will also betray Sigurd. Man, Regan betrayed all of us, but that's getting a little political. <laughs> I'm sure it's spelled differently, but that's what I keep thinking every time I hear the name. That's that's fair. It's um, R-E-G-I-N, like the Shakespeare character, oh, okay. Regan. Regan betrayed me, and will betray you. Us both to death he will bring. His life, methinks, must Fafnir lose, for the mightier man wast thou. Regan had gone to a distance while Sigurd fought Fafnir, and came back while Sigurd was wiping the blood from his sword. Regan said, Hail to thee, Sigurd! Thou victory hast, and Fafnir in fight hast slain. Of all the men who tread the earth, most fearless art thou, methinks. Sigurd spoke. Unknown it is, when all are together, the sons of the glorious gods, who bravest born shall seem, some are valiant who redden no sword in the blood of a foeman's breast. I like this stanza because it's very interesting. It says that a man can be brave without ever killing somebody. That is unusual. It's very unusual for the Viking, well, Viking is an inaccurate word, but for the Nordic Icelandic, what's the word that I'm Milieu? I suppose. I was going to say genre, but that's not right. (laughs) Like, the cultural tradition of, Iceland- of Icelandic and Nordic literature does not often say that a man is brave if he doesn't kill somebody. Yeah, there's a lot of killing. There's a lot of killing. Anyway, Regan speaks again. Glad art thou, Sigurd, of battle gained, as Gram with grass thou cleanest. That is to say, Gram is his sword, so he's wiping his sword in the grass. My brother fierce and feist hath slain, and somewhat I did myself. Sigurd spake. Afar dost thou go, while Fafnir reddened, with his blood my blade so keen, while the might of the dragon my strength I match, while thou in heather didst hide. Regan. Longer wouldst thou in the heather have let yon hoary giant hide, had the weapon availed not that once I forged, the keen-edged blade didst bear. Regan crafted Grom specifically so Sigurd could kill Fafnir. Yeah, so I think it's fair to give her part of the credit. That seems reasonable. Yes. Also, Regan's a dude. Oh. He's a dude in this one, and in the Shakespeare one, it's a girl's name. Yeah, that's what threw me. Yes. So it's a cool, gender-neutral name for your next character. All right. All right. Sigurd. Better is heart than a mighty blade for him who shall fiercely fight. The brave men well shall fight and win, though dull his maid may be. 
Brave men better than cowards be when clash of battle comes, and better the glad than the gloomy man shall face what before him lies. Thy read it was that I should ride, or hither the mountains high, that glittering worm would have wealth and life if thou had not mocked my might. Then Regan went up to Fafnir and cut out his heart with his sword that was named Rethil, and then he drank the blood of the wound. Regan said, Sit now, Sigrith, for sleep will I hold Fafnir's heart to the fire, for all his heart shall eaten be, since deep of blood I have drunk. Sigrith took Fafnir's heart and cooked it on a spit. When he thought that it had fully cooked and the blood foamed out of the heart, he tried it with his finger to see if it was fully cooked. He burned his finger and put it in his mouth. But when Fafnir's heart's blood came on his tongue, he understood the speech of birds, which is why Regan did it. He heard nuthatches chattering in the thickets. Yeah, Regan wanted to talk to birds. I assume that it also grants you other knowledge if you eat the whole thing? That's unclear. Because, like, if just a little bit lets you talk to birds, maybe... What could the whole heart do? Yeah. We'll never know. Also, I believe that Professor Hughes was adamant about saying that these were not nuthatches, but they were actually titmice. This does sound familiar. I feel like he did make that point. Nuthatches didn't live there at that time. So they're titmice. I just need to say it for posterity. But funnily enough, the titmouse said, There sits Sigurd sprinkled with blood, and Fafnir's heart with a fire he cooks. Wise were the breaker of rings, I ween, to eat the life muscles all so bright. Another bird. There Regan lies, and plans he lays, the youth to betray who trusts him well. Lying words with wiles will he speak, till his brother, the maker of mischief, avenges. The third. Lest by a head let the chatterer hoary go from here to hell, then all the wealth he alone can wield, the gold that Fafnir guarded. A fourth. Wait, there's four? There's a rule of threes. Uh, there are seven. Oh. There are seven. Seven is also acceptable. (laughs) It's either three or seven. It's gotta be one. Come on, you guys. The fourth. Wise would he seem if he would heed the counsel we good sisters give, though he would grieve and and the ravens gladden, there is ever a wolf where his ears I spy. Less wise must be the tree of battle than to me would seem the leader of men, if forth he lets one brother fare while the other the slayer is. And the brothers that they're talking about here is Regan and Fafnir. They are actually brothers. And we will see how and why this works in the Volsunga saga. It doesn't involve anyone f***ing a dragon. Alas? Question mark? I just feel like that has to be gotten out of the way first, is just because there's a dragon and a human and their brothers, it doesn't mean that one of their parents was a dragon. Correct. The real story is more interesting, I feel, but I'll leave that to you to judge. But anyway, we are on the sixth bird. Most foolish he seems if he shall spare his foe, the bane of the folk. There Regan lies, who hath wronged him so, yet falsehood knows he not. A seventh. Let the head from the frost-cold giant be hewed, and let him of rings be robbed. Then all the wealth which Fafnir's was shall belong to thee alone. I just want to note before we let Sigurd talk that this is another folkloric motif, that birds have, like, secret knowledge, and if you can understand them, you learn all kinds of things. That shows up in folklore all over the place. True. Very true. We sort of see that in um, Brandon the Navigator. Well, weren't the birds angels, though? They were... I don't know if they were angels. They were, they were like, transformed holy people. <laughs> they, the, the ones in purgatory? Something like that. Again, my memory, very bad. I remember them being something... It was angelic. unclear. Ah. Uh, 
But yeah, it's probably drawing from the same tradition. Yeah. Anyway, here we go. Sigurd's talking. Not so rich a fate shall Regan have as the tale of my death to tell, for soon the brothers both shall die and hence to hell shall go. Sigurd hewed off Regan's head and then he ate Fafnir's heart and drank the blood of both Regan and Fafnir. That seems excessive. I mean, if you just take a little bit of blood and you can talk to birds. That's true. I wonder if he did get anything else from eating the whole heart. You'll have to read the Volsunga Saga to find out. I've already read the Volsunga Saga, I just don't remember. <laughs> Uh, then Sigurd heard what another nuthatch said, or maybe it's the same titmouse. Bind, Sigurd, the golden rings together. Not kingly is it aught to fear. I know a maid, there is none so fair, rich in gold, if thou might get her. Green the paths that to Yuki. Yuki? It's G-J-U-K-I. Yuki, I'd say. Yuki. But I'm just guessing there. Yeah, that one's a hard one. Green the paths that to Yuki lead, and his fate the way to the wanderer shows. The doughty king a daughter has, that thou as a bride mayest Sigurd by. Another titmouse. A hall stands high on Hjarfull. All with flame is it ringed without. Warriors wise did make it once, out of the flaming light of the flood. On the mountain sleeps a battle maid, and about her plays the bane of the wood. Yig with the horn hath smitten her thus, for she fell the fighter he fain would save. There mayest thou behold the maiden helmed, who forth on Vingskornir, Vings, Vingskorner, yep. rode from the fight. The victory bringer, her sleep shall break not, thou hero's son, so the Norns have set. I hope you all are taking notes on all these kinnings, by the way. There's going to be a <laughs> test later. And these are the these are the basic ones. These are ones that were translated into English as the easy ones. Yeah, because these are the ones we're like, you can figure it out. The bane of the wood, that's fire. There you go. Yeah, we're easy good. Easy peasy. Yeah. Sigurd rode along Fafnir's trail to his lair and found it open. The gateposts were of iron, and the gates of iron too were all the beams in the house, which was dug down into the earth. There Sigurd found a mighty store of gold, and he filled two chests full thereof. He took the fear helm, that's the screaming helmet thing, and a golden mail coat with the sword, Kroti, and many other precious things, and loaded Grani, that's his horse, with them. But the horse would not go forward until Sigurd mounted his back. And this is important because it's emphasizing that his horse is like a heroic horse because he's covered in saddlebags filled with gold and precious metals, and Sigurd tries to go on without him, like walk beside his horse. But the horse is saying, no, you got to get on my back, too, because that's my duty as your war horse. And that is the Ballad of Fafnir, or the Lay of Fafnir. And if you didn't follow that, we're going to be telling a different version of that story just momentarily. <laughs> yes. So, a little bit to cover. Should I cover the themes first, or should I get into the Volsunga Saga first? Uh, let's do the themes first. Okay, let's do the themes so some of the themes here is Fafnir and Regan are both what we like to call non-human human beings. These are creatures in the Viking sagas, stories, etc. that are humanoid and identified as human, but they are otherworldly or not like human beings in a certain mm -hmm. way. So I like to explain this by talking about what you might consider humanoid in D&D, for instance, or trolls, elves, halflings, etc. These are all non-human human beings. Right. Like it's nowadays, we just say it's like the difference between a 
between the term human and the term person, the latter being yeah. a much broader one that can fit all sorts of non-human things, fictional or otherwise. But the reason we use the term non-human human beings in this podcast is because it, that's the uh, that's the term used by the professor in the class where we met, Woo-hoo! and he was pulling it from. <laughs> The Norse term uh, miniskirmen, which means human human beings, and they're therefore implying therefore, the existence of non-human, <laughs> non-human human beings. beings. Oh, God bless. So Fafnir is one of those. Regan is also one of those. And as we get into Regan's part of the story, you'll also meet a guy called Otir, who can shapeshift or transform into an otter. Who could have guessed? <laughs> So there are lots of non-human human beings in all of these stories. And why this is particularly interesting is that Fafnir was a person who became a dragon. That's why Regan is so mad at him. They've got this family feud going on and Fafnir sat on his pile of gold and was so greedy that he turned into a dragon. Yep, that's how that works. That's how that works. It'll be happening to Elon Musk any day now. Yeah, Jeff I'm not Bezos, sure if it'll be an Elon improvement. Musk. Like, we're all looking at our watches here. <laughs> <laughs> or possibly Jeff Bezos, you know. Yeah, we'll who see. knows? One of them. Yeah. One of them. You know, that would be a really good indicator of, like, who has too much wealth. If the people actually turned into dragons. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. We'd be like, oh, nope, they've hit the limit. <laughs> and then it becomes legal to slay them. <laughs> We've solved like it. <laughs> redistribution of wealth would be so much more, I guess morally straightforward if whenever True. someone had too much money they turned into a dragon that would be that would be pretty good so yes we have fafnir regan and this sort of non-human human being thing um and also notably this lady at the end that the birds are singing about is actually a valkyrie as well because mm-hmm. she lives up basically up in an eyrie actually if i recall correctly and sigurd has to go find her and happily ever after well, not in any Viking story, but they yeah, get married. I don't think there is a happily ever after, but he's supposed to have one. He's supposed to have one. Which, again, another theme here is rescuing the princess from the dragon. In this sense, it's not directly from the dragon, but it is directly as a consequence of having slain the dragon. Mm-hmm. So that's one modern theme that we can already see. Uh, another theme that we can see is dragons and riddles. So Fafnir and Sigurd have this back and forth of who knows the most lore, who can answer this little riddle, which obviously we see with Smaug in The Hobbit. And we'll see this later on in the Nibelungenlied and the Volsunga saga. One of the notes that I wrote down that I really like, this is an idea that I cling to because I find it extraordinarily interesting is that the special influence of dragons and riddles is all about a power game referencing that words have power. And we can see that here, especially in the idea that Sigurd does not want to give Fafnir his name. And when he does, Fafnir then has the ability to curse him to his death. Mm -hmm. And That's the reference that we see to water will be your bane if you go in the wrong direction with the ore. So this is an example of a curse or a geish, whatever you want to call it. It is laying down because Fafnir knows Sigurd's name. So if you cross a dying man and he knows your name, he can curse you. That's one of those rules. All right. 
Oh, yes, I did want to mention the Norns. For those who are unfamiliar with the Norns, these are like the fates of Greek myth. They are three women who control fate and destiny. So even the gods have to deal with the Norns, for instance. Mm -hmm. And Snorri here says they're of different races. So one is of elf folk, one is of the gods and Dvalin's daughters. I don't... Where does Dvalin reign? I'm going to bet that that's a dwarf, because that sounds dwarven. It does sound very dwarven. Well, it's a Genshin Impact character, that's funny. Yes, dwarf, you're correct. Woo! Which, why does it sound dwarven to you? Well, one, because it is a dwarven name, but also because Tolkien! Tolkien yep, names I one of his Tolkien dwarves. I think Tolkien actually pulled that one directly. He did. There is a list of dwarves at the end of either the Poetic or Prose Edda, and he just pulled that straight. Gandalf is in that list, actually, as well, which I think is funny. He's the only list in the dwarf names that is not a dwarf. But there you go. All right, on to the Saga of the Volsungs. Ooh, there was one theme that I did miss, or almost miss, and I thought about it. At the very, very end of The Lay of Fafnir, they talk about, Sigurd talks about the ring. And let me see if I can find the, uh, I counsel thee, Sigurd, heed my speech, and ride thou homeward hence. The sounding gold, the glow red wealth, and the rings thy bane shall be. And then later, the bird says about Regan. Let the head from the frost-cold giant be hewed, and let him of rings be robbed. Then all the wealth which Fafnir's was shall belong to thee alone. So first off, again, we see a non-human human being here in Regan because the bird is calling him a frost-cold giant. So maybe mm-hmm. he's an Aotin or a Jotun. And also we see again the ring motif and a curse. Right, and rings are, of course, we're talking wealth. Yes. Possibly, I don't remember this very well, but I think this is linked. Is the ring that makes nine other rings every night? Yep. That's this, this ring. That's this ring. Okay. Which, coincidentally, obviously, if it's not obvious already, Tolkien borrowed. Mm-hmm. Or just straight up stole. Yes, here we go. And I will get it's to that. It's public domain. He can't. You can't steal it if it's public domain. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. So this is chapter 14 in the Volsunga saga. Regan's tale of his brothers and of the gold called Andvari's Hoard. So this gold already has been hoarded, and that's Mm going to become important later. The tale begins, said Regan. Hredmar was my father's name, a mighty man and wealthy. His first son was named Fafnir, his second Otir, and I was the third, and least of them all, both for prowess and good conditions, but I was cunning to work with iron and silver and gold, whereof I could make matters that availed somewhat. Other skill my brother Otir followed, and another nature withal, for he was a great fisher, and above other men herein, and in that he had the likeness of an otter by day, and dwelt ever in the river, and bare fish to bank by his mouth. His prey would he ever bring to our father that availed him much, and for the most part he kept himself in his otter gear, and he would come home and eat alone and sleep, for on the dry land he might see not. But Fafnir by far was the greatest and grimmest, and would have all things about called his. So is otter gear a shaping, perhaps? I think it's a shaping, because earlier in this saga, we already have shapings with, um, mm-hmm. who is it? It's like Sinfloti and... Sigmund, I want to say. Sigmund, yeah, you're right. 
who steal shapings and are able to transform into wolves. So here, it's not actually clear whether he can just like polymorph shapeshift into an otter or whether he puts on his like otter cloak mm-hmm. or little shaping. I think it's that one because we've already seen it in this saga specifically and it does say otter gear. But I mean, the guy's name is literally O-T-R, O-T-R, otter. So it may be something inborn. Yeah, we're not quite sure. It's never, never really explained. Uh, so already, all three of these brothers are non-human human beings. Now, says Regan, there was a dwarf called Anvari, who ever abode in that force, which was called Anvari's force, in the likeness of a pike, and got meat for himself, for many fish there were in the force. I'm guessing that this force is a river. Or a, I was thinking abode. waterfall, but yeah, I that guess it makes work. more sense for it to be a river if there are many fish in it. You know what? I like waterfall. That makes sense because he is a dwarf and he has a horde, and so I'm thinking of like that cave behind the waterfall. I'm Googling. Yes, that's what's learned. Why am I doing this? <laughs> I keep Googling when I could just OED. Hey, hey, let's OED that bitch. Okay, according to the OED, force, definition two, a borrowing from early Scandinavian, a name for a waterfall or cascade. Hey, you got it right. Well done. I feel like I had looked that up before, probably for the same reason. <laughs> probably. Anyway, it's a good refresher. So, anyway... Essentially, Otir, my brother, was ever wont to enter the waterfall and bring fish a land and lay them one by one on the bank. And so it befell that Odin, Loki, and Hrunir, as they went their ways, came to Anvari's force, and Otir had taken a salmon and ate it slumbering upon the riverbank. Then Loki took a stone and cast it at Otir, so that he got his death thereby. And the gods were well content with their prey, and fell to flaying off the otter's skin. And in the evening they came to Hredmar's house, and showed him what they had taken. And thereon he laid hands on the gods, and doomed them such to ransom, as that they should fill the otter skin with gold, cover it over without with red gold, and so they sent Loki to gather the gold together for them. And he came to Ran, and got her net, and went therewith to Anvari's force, and cast the net before the pike, and the pike fell into the net and was taken. Then said Loki, and I'm going to get into this in a minute, essentially what we have here is a were-guild. So Loki kills Otir, they are all amazed at this wonderful otter skin that they now have, and then they show up at Otter's dad's house. <laughs> Not a good look for the gods. And so, uh, well... He says, to pay back my son's death, you have to fill up the otter skin with gold and pile it, pile the gold on top. Essentially, you're going to make me a hoard to pay back my son's death. Yes. And it, it has to not only fill the skin, but then once the skin is filled, it has to cover the skin entirely. On top. Yep. So, of course, they send Loki to do this because why not? Yes. And what's this about a pike? So this is the fish, like the pike fish. I did figure that much out, but why is he catching a pike? Because he's, first he steals the pike's net, and then he catches the pike. Well, no, 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 sorry, sorry. He came to Ran and got her net. So there's another character called Ran, gets the net, and then catches the pike. And says, What fish of all fishes swims strong in the flood, but hath learnt little wit to beware? Thine head thou must buy from abiding in hell, and find me the wan water's flame. He answered, this is the uh, the fish, the pike. Anvari folk call me, and Oin my father. Over many a force I have fared, for a norn of ill luck this life on me lay, the wet ways ever to wade. Essentially, a norn cursed him to be a pike. 
and Loki is saying, I want you to find me the wan water's flame. So if you haven't picked up on this, it is a ring or a treasure that is in the water. Yes, the, the flame of the water is gold, and that's a common kidding because of this story. And what does this remind you of? <laughs> I assume Tolkien, but Tolkien. I'm just guessing. It is Tolkien, because Isildur, on his way from Mordor with the Ring of Power, died. He was attacked by orcs and died in the river, and the ring slipped off his finger, and then Gollum finds it. Yep, yep, I remember this now. He did not do a damn original thing in his life. <gasps> I'm kidding. Tolkien did many wonderful world-building creation things, but once you start seeing where he gets this from, you really start realizing how much he pulled from history, and it's really interesting to see. Well, apparently it works, so that means you can do it too. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I like looking at these texts, is because I am here to spite Tolkien. Now, how many regular fish did Loki go through before he found the one that was, like, transformed and had a horde? I figure that this is like a massive monstrous pike, because those are big fish mm -hmm. in this river. And so he just got this magical net and was like, ha ha, scoop. Like, I bet there's something special about that one. There's gotta be. So anyway, Loki beheld the gold of Anvari, and when he had given up the gold, he had but one ring left that Loki also took from him. And then the dwarf went to the hollow of the rocks, the dwarf is Anvari. Anvari is a dwarf. He is also a fish. Is he still a fish? I don't know. The text is not clear. But anyway, he goes into the hollow of the rocks and cries out that the gold ring and the gold withal shall be the bane of every man who should own it thereafter. A curse. A curse upon you, upon your cow, upon everyone who will own it forever and ever and ever. All because of Loki. So... Now the gods rode with the treasure to Hredmar, and fulfilled the otter skin, and set it on its feet, and they must cover it over utterly with gold. But when this was done, Hredmar came forth and beheld yet one of the muzzle hairs, and bade them cover it also. And so Odin drew the ring, and Vari's loom, that is to say, the ring, that special little last ring that mm -hmm. Anvari wanted. He took it from his hand, and covered up the little muzzle hair, and then sang Loki, Goldie now, golden now, a great ware guild thou hast, that my head in good hap may I hold, but thou and thy son are not fated to thrive, the bane shall it be of you both. Thereafter, said Regan, because remember he's telling this story, Fafnir slew his father and murdered him, nor got I the treasure. And so evil he grew, that he fell lying abroad, and begrudged any share in the wealth to any man, and so became the worst of all worms and now lies brooding upon that treasure. But for me, I went to the king and became his master smith. Thus is the tale told how I lost the heritage of my father and the wear guild for my brother. Fafnir took the gold, turned into a dragon, and Regan is jealous of it, even though he's the third son and technically doesn't have a claim to it. Also, he knows it's cursed. I don't know why he would want it, but he's apparently a greedy little That's true. He did just tell us that it was cursed. Twice, yes, he did. actually. <laughs> You can chalk this up to the convention of the genre, if you so desire. So spake Regan, but since that time, the gold is called Otter Guild, and for no other cause than this, obviously. Mm -hmm. But Sigrid answered, Much hast thou lost, and exceeding evil thy kinsmen have endured. But now, make a sword by thy craft, such a sword that none can be made unto like it, so that I may do great deeds therewith. Yeah, that's rough, buddy. Now make me a sword. 
so that I can slay this dragon. So he's gonna he's gonna take vengeance for being upon his brother and the cursed horde of gold. So I'm going to skip the bit where they create the sword of the slaying of the worm Fafnir. Here we go. Now Sigurd and Regan ride up the heath along the same way when Fafnir was wont to creep where he fared to the water, and folk say that thirty fathoms was the height of that cliff along which he lay when he drank of the water below. So he's got a neck that is thirty fathoms long. Oh, okay. Apparently. And Sigurd spake. How say you, Regan, that this drake was no greater than otherly worms? Methinks the track of him is marvelously great. Then Regan said, Make a hole and sit down therein, whereas the worm comes to the water, smite him into the heart, and so do him to death. And therein you will win great fame. Ah, yes, do him to death. <laughs> for, for the listeners, Zoe started losing her straight face as soon as she said that phrase. <laughs> it's a weird phrase. <laughs> Much death, very blood. Do him to death, Fafnir he did. I don't know. <laughs> These translations are weird. Anyway, Sigurd's like, okay, cool. What will betide me if I am before the blood of the worm? And Regan said, of what avail to counsel thee if you are still afeard of everything? Little are you like your kinsman in stoutness of heart. And Sigurd's, he can't stand this. He's like, how dare you say that I am not a courageous man. I am a manly Nobody man. Nobody calls me chicken. <laughs> exactly. So even though this is like a massive massive dragon he's gonna go kill him so sigurd makes a pit and there came an old man with a long beard and asked what he was doing there and the old man said after sigurd answered thou doest after sorry counsel rather than dig thee many pits let the blood run therein but sit down in one thereof so thrust the worm's heart through and therewithal he vanished away, but Sigurd made the pits even as, as it was shown to him. So instead of making, like, pits for the blood of the worm to fill up, he's saying just, like, let it go down the hill, and then sit in one and get it up. Like, don't make a bunch of pits that you might have to scramble into, essentially. And this old man, you might remember from our poem, is Odin. Uh, of course. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm being surprised. <laughs> I appreciate you. My audience of one for this moment. <laughs> now crept the worm to his place of watering, and the earth shook all about him, and he snorted forth venom on the way before him as he went, but neither Sigurd trembled nor was adrad at the roaring of him. It says adrad. That's a great word. That is a good word. Right? So when as the worm crept over the pits, Sigurd thrust his sword under his left shoulder so that it sank up to the hilt. And then Sigurd leapt up from the pit, drew the sword back unto him, and therewithal his arm was all bloody up to the very shoulder. So Sigurd stabs Fafnir so far into his body that it's up to his shoulder. Wasn't he worried about, like, what happens when he gets dragon blood on him? Does that come to anything? Not like, he's not eating it at this point. But no, it's oh, not yes. venomous. It, the venom is venomous, but the blood is still just blood, apparently. It doesn't boil your skin off. Just wondering, since it came up. That's fair. I would be concerned. Now when the mighty worm was aware that he had his death wound, he lashed out head and tail, so that all things soever were before him broken into pieces. And then Fafnir said, Who art thou, and who is thy father? And what thy kin? And that thou wert so hardy to bear weapons against me. Sigurd answered, Unknown to men is my kin. I am called Noble Beast. Neither father nor mother have I, and all alone I have fared hither. 
said Fafnir. Why don't you have father or mother? And of what wonder were you born? But now, though you tell us me not your name on my death day, you know very well that you're lying to me. And Sigurd answered, Sigurd I am called, and my father was Sigmund. And Fafnir said, Who egged thee on to this deed, and why would you be driven to it? Had you never heard how all the folk were adrad of me, and aware of my countenance? But an eager father you had, O bright-eyed swain. So he's heard of his dad. Oh, okay. I just remembered that came up in one of the articles that we read, is that Fafnir had knowledge about Sigurd that seemed kind of weirdly supernatural. Mm-hmm. Like it was part of the dragon lore. Yeah. Dragons, no shit. Uh, here we go. Yes, so Sigurd's like, haha, I'm brave, and I'm not a faint-hearted youth. And then Fafnir's like, wow, you are really brave. I have never met a guy who would kill me like this, obviously. And then Sigurd. <laughs> That's what it says! For few among bondsmen have the heart for this fight. Bruh. Is he being classist right now? I I don't know. I think it's saying bondsmen as in, like, the knights of the lord. Oh, uh, okay. Like, you know, like the ring guys. They, they've got their little ring of loyalty that they wear. Said Sigurd, Will you then cast it in my teeth that I am far away from my kin? Although I was a bondsman, yet I was never shackled. Oh, I guess you're right. God, were you have found me free now, quoth Fafnir. In angry wise do you take my speech. Basically, you take my speech in anger, but hearken, for the same gold which I have owned shall be your bane too. Sigurd says, Fain would we keep all our wealth till the day of days, yet each man shall die once for all. He's basically saying, like, yeah, I'm I'm not going to be able to keep my wealth anyway. We're all going to die eventually. Fafnir said, Few things will you do after my counsel, but take heed that you shall be drowned if you fare unwarily over the sea. So stay on dry land for the coming of the calm tide. Then says Sigurd, Speak, Fafnir, and say if you are so exceedingly wise. Who are the Norns who rule the lot of all mother's sons? Fafnir says, Many there are and born wide apart, for some are the kin of the Aesir, some are elven kin, and some are who are the daughters of Dvalin. And Sigurd says, How name you the home whereon Surt and the Aesir mix and mingle in the water of the sword? Uh, Surt is a fire giant who will destroy the world at Ragnarok. Unshapen is that home height. So, like, he's saying the, the hill's not there yet. Yes, correct. <laughs> Mac here. I didn't notice this until I was listening during editing, but Unshapen is the literal translation of the name Oskopnir, which was given in the previous version. Uh, and then... I believe this is Fafnir. Yes. Regan, my brother, has brought about my end, and it gladdens my heart that you too he will bringeth about, for thus things will be according to his will. And once again he spake, a countenance of terror I bore before all folk, and after that I brooded over the heritage of my brother, and on every side did I spout out poison, so that none would come against me, and of no weapon was I a drad, nor had ever I so many men before me, that I deemed myself not stronger than them all, for all men were afraid of me. And then Sigurd said, Few may have victory by means of the same countenance of terror, for whoso comes amongst many shall one day find that no man is so far the mightiest of them all. So, Odysseus? Hmm? He is no man. Dang it. Odysseus is the mightiest of them all by that logic. That's fair. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Anyway, uh, they go back and forth. Yeah. 
Wallow in your death pain till death and hell have thee, Fafnir. Screw you, bud. And then, Regan pops up and says, Hail, lord and master, you've done great. You've slain the dragon. And Sigurd wipes off Grom on the grass again. And then says Regan is a coward. He's like, you said that I couldn't slay the dragon, but you were hiding in the grass all this time. And Regan's like, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm not a fighter. I made you I made your the sword. sword man. Yeah, exactly. What more do you want? Therewith, Sigurd cut out the heart of the worm with the sword called Redil. But Regan drank of Fafnir's blood and spake. Wasn't the sword called Grom earlier? Yes, I think this is Regan's sword. It was Regan's sword in the poem. Oh, okay. So, eh, things get lost in translation over the years. I'm just being the audience stand-in here. Yes, fair enough. And Regan commands Sigurd to bake the heart and eat it. Presumably because if it's not bloody, then you don't get the power. Oh, okay. That's the logic that I always took from this, because the whole point is that Regan is going to kill Sigurd as well. And the only reason that Sigurd figures this out is because he touches the heart to test to see whether it's done and then licks his finger and the blood comes off because it's not done yet. Mm-hmm. And then he gets Titmouse speak. <laughs> you know, you get your common, your elven, your Titmouse. The phrase Titmouse speak just struck me funny. <laughs> it's a good one. Let's see. Yeah, so he does the same thing. And he knew the voice of all fowls and heard withal how the woodpeckers chattered in the break beside him. So now it's woodpeckers. First it was nuthatches, now it's woodpeckers, titmice, birds. Yeah, birds. Again, they warn him, and they do their little singing back and forth, and Sigurd says, The time is unborn while Regan shall be my bane, nay, rather one road shall both of these brothers spare. Which is to say, the time where Regan is going to kill me is never going to come, and he cuts off Regan's head. And then they sing of the shield maiden, that is to say, Valkyrie, Brynhild, once more. He took all the gold and laid it in two... Oh, wait, hang on. There's a fun part with loot. I'm going to read the loot because it's yeah. got cool names. He found it open. All the doors were open in the hoard. It was dug down deep into the earth. And Sigurd found gold exceeding plenteous. That's a horrible sentence. And the sword roti... exceeding plenteous. <laughs> That's a phrase. Okay. That's a phrase. The gold was exceeding plenteous. <laughs> Do him to death. I, I can't tell what's them translating literally and what's them like doing deliberate archaizing. And once again, this is why we need more grants for people to create more translations for us. Yes. Because these are very, very old and difficult to interpret sometimes. Yeah. And we have to use the old ones because copyrights. Yep. But wouldn't it be nice if someone were to, I don't know, release translations under a Creative Commons license? What? But who? I, whoever could could do such a thing. <laughs> Alright, so we've got the Sword Roti and the Helm of Awe and the Gold Bernie. It, it's a Bernie, but it's spelled B-Y-R-N-Y, so Bernie, the Gold Bernie. And many things, fair and good. Mail coat for those of you who don't speak old-fashioned. Yes. <laughs> And so much gold he found there that scarce might two horses or three bear it hence. So he took all the gold and laid it in two chests and set it on his horse Grani and took the reins of him. No wise will he stir and neither will he go smiting. 
Then Sigurd knew the mind of the horse and leapt on his back and smites and spurs into him, and off the horse went as if it were unladen. Did you know the mind? I mean, I guess the text bears him out, but I feel like, oh, he won't go unless I'm on him is a much less logical conclusion than this horse has too much to carry. It won't move because it's too heavy. (laughs) Who knows? He's either a murder hobo, like um, like any D&D player, or he's got magic horse girl powers, like Aragorn. I forgot that. I always forget about Aragorn's magic horse girl powers. He's a horse girl. The entire, like, all the films are just Aragorn horse film movies. It's just a horse girl movie. That is a take. <laughs> it's an entirely wrong take, but I enjoy saying it. <laughs> But yes, uh, Aragorn does have the magical ability to chat with horses. Isn't that how he meets Aomer? As he's doing his horse girl powers and she walks in on him? Aowen? Like, oh, you're so good. Something like Thank that, you. yeah. Aowen. Aomer's her brother. Aomer's the guy, yeah. Yep. They both mean, like, horse person. Pretty yeah. horse person. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's literally how they basically translate. Zoe's the one who knows Tolkien. I've forgotten it. You know... I'm getting there again. I'm, I'm catching up. So anyway, that is the saga of the Volsungs. That's the lay of Fafnir as it is described like a couple hundred years later. And add on to that a couple hundred years, we have the Nibelungen Lied, which I'm not going to read, but I'll give a brief summary of it. It is an epic poem written in Middle High German. It chronicles the story of Siegfried the Dragon Slayer at the court of the Burgundians, how he was killed and how Krumhild, his wife, exacted revenge. And again, this comes from the Lay of Fafnir, Vulsunga Saga, and is then transformed into the six-hour-long German opera, and then the film. Yes. So, going back through this one, hopefully this version is slightly more straightforward than the poem. But that's why I wanted to stagger it, so you could sort of play along with the poetry, then get into the themes, and now we're looking at the prose version of this text and so Mm -hmm. once more because i can we're gonna go through the comparisons of where we see these tropes in modern texts or you know wherever and then i have a couple of interesting articles i have three interesting articles but there's so much about this topic that i want to get into but that would go way too long and a lot of it talked about other dragon lore as well so i figured we wouldn't get into that today but it would be really interesting to do like a comparison of like the beowulf dragon versus fafnir versus whatever yeah weren't we first gonna do uh tolkien yeah yes that's right tolkien so let's walk through this one yes correct thank you i got excited about the articles All right, so first starting off and again this won't just be looking at modern stuff but just sort of going through the text itself for any interesting notes that we can pull from. So interestingly enough, that one special ring was not described as the ring that turns into nine rings, which I thought it was. It might just not be mentioned in this um, translation of the text. So let me check. Draupnir. Ah, that's what it is. Oh, it's because it's in the same text. That's why we're conflating the two. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but yes, so um, Anvari's ring, it's also known as Anvari's gift because it helps find other sources of gold. So again, we have this big hoard that is associated with the ring. And interestingly enough, 
this horde is not only cursed, it's got the ring that goes along with it, and whosoever has it wants more. So greed is a central theme of this text. And then we've already talked about the non-human human beings. Mm-hmm. I think mostly we, we covered all of this already. So we've got our magic name swords, which we also have for Beowulf when he slays Gretir. Gretir, wow. When he, when he slays Yeah, that was Rangel. a great crossover pick. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been something? Well, I mean, there are a lot of analogs between the two. Mm-hmm. Saga thing keeps saying they're going to do an episode on it, but they so far still haven't. Oh, really? Grittier Saga? No, they're going a special one on uh, the parallels between Grettir and Beowulf. Ooh, that would be good. Yeah, right? <laughs> Although I can't talk. They they did a poll on their Discord saying, like, should we do Grettir or should we do our special episode on alcohol in the Norse <laughs> world? And I, I voted for alcohol. So, yeah, fair enough. Alrighty. Yeah, let's just jump into the articles. Unless you have anything special to add. Nope. Cool. Alright. Let's jump into these articles. Alright. So the first article I have is a Peter Acker article. Sorry, Paul Acker article called Death by Dragons. And this is a really great article. I highly suggest it. It basically goes into all the different ways that people have been killed by dragons in medieval sagas and folklore and stories. Great read. Very funny. And I won't go into all of them because, again, we're not talking about all the dragons. Mm -hmm. But I thought I would read the abstract so as to pique everyone's interest. Quote, While lauding the men who kill dragons, some more superlatively than others, Icelandic sources also describe a variety of ways by which dragons kill men. The Yorgermanic dragon seems to be an overgrown snake. Ormar pose a threat by virtue of their intimidating size and undulating coils. Others spew venom or scatter it about, so their range of mortal destruction is broader than that of ordinary vipers. Met face-to-face, they are capable of swallowing a man or woman whole. Winged Ormar or Drekar can pick up humans and carry them off. When old Norse dragons acquire the ability to breathe fire, they only rarely wreak devastation, and never on the scale of the Beowulf dragon. So there are some very interesting. interesting things there. Going on. Dragon slayers in Old English and Old Norse, then, are an elite group, although they are not quite as rare as Tolkien's famous remark about dragons being as rare as they are dire might suggest. Other Nordic dragon slayers, if you're interested in having a list, include Thor in the prologue to Snorri's Edda, Furotho in Saxo's Gesta Denorum, in the family sagas Thorkel Hakir, Braggart in the Brennunjal saga, Bjorn, that's a word, uh, Hitdal. Hitalakapi, Bjorn Hitalakapi. Means champion of the Hitterdal people. Thank you. In Bjornar Saga and Gulthurir in Gulthurir Saga. That wasn't sight translation. That was me remembering that <laughs> uh, Saga thing did an episode. <laughs> yeah. There's also Ketilhanger, Orvar Odir, Ragnar, likely Ragnar Lothbrok, Srithrekar. In the King's Sagas, we have Haraldor. And in material from foreign sources, we have Tristam, which is Tristan in the Arthurian, I almost said sagas, the Arthurian tales. Ivan, or Ivan, Eriks, Jason in Trulyumana Saga, and Saint Margaret. Some of these other dragon slayers will make an appearance below, but my focus will be less on them than the unfortunate victims of dragons. Not on how to kill a dragon in Old Norse. See Watkins, 1995. 
which I need to look up now, but on how to be killed on the hapless rather than the heroic. And he noted he notices here that Fafnir doesn't actually kill anyone that we know of, but through Sigurd's and Fafnir's commentary back and forth, we sort of get the idea that he's a terror of the area, at least. Yeah, it's implied. Yeah, I mostly found this one and was so taken by it because I thought it was so interesting. So please go look that one up or request it from the professor himself. He lists his email in this article. Uh, it is a-C-K-E-R-P-L at S-L-U dot E-D-U. He's a professor of English at St. Louis University. So if you're interested, you can always request from him. However, my more uh, heartier article that I found is called The Horde Makes the Dragon, Fafnir as a Shapeshifter by Santiago Barriero. And this is from a book, Shapeshifters in Medieval North Atlantic Literature. I like the phrase, The Horde Makes the Dragon. Isn't that great? I know, it's it's a it's a very good title. And I really like this one because with this article, we get to see how academics cross-reference each other. Because here's the first mm-hmm. paragraph. Fafnir is undoubtedly the most famous dragon in Norse literature, and certainly one of the most famous in the literatures written in the Germanic languages during the Middle Ages, arguably on par with the nameless beast in Beowulf. Dragons are not as abundant as popularly imagined in these literatures, although they are not as rare as Tolkien suggested, as Paul Acker has shown. Moreover, Fafnir is arguably less stereotypically dragonesque than his old English fire-breathing cousin, for a simple reason. He lives for a good portion of his life in bipedal, humanoid form together with his relatives, quite a different life from the seemingly lonely existence experienced by Beowulf's last antagonist. In simple terms, Fafnir is not a dragon, but initially a man. Although, to be fair, we don't know that the dragon in Beowulf didn't have a similar backstory. That's very true. You never know. Plus, it was also cursed. We're never told. The Horde was also cursed. Yes. But anyway, here, quite obviously, Barriero is familiar with Paul Acker and cites his article, Death by Dragons. So, very fun. I love when that happens. I wanted Mm -hmm. to point it out. So, picking some highlights from this article. Quote, The Tale of Fafnir is one of a dysfunctional family disrupted by unexpected visitors. And like the final part of Beowulf, it is one of an unshared treasure guarded by a reptilian monster. Moreover, in both stories, the dragon appears as an effect of the treasure. After killing his father and scaring away his younger brother Regan, Snorra Edda informs us that Fafnir went up to Ginta's heath and made for himself a dwelling there, and changed into the shape of an Ormar and laid on the gold. So here, the most interesting thing about his thesis is that he's saying that it is not the will of the man itself that makes a dragon, but rather the effect that the gold has on him. Mm -hmm. So, while Fafnir is the best known example, there are several other cases of men turning draconic, a frequent trait in dragon stories in Norse literature. The first and most obvious parallel with Fafnir is Regan in Thrydric's saga, but this is clearly a part of the Volsunga saga cycle, except the names of the brothers are changed, while Regan playing the Fafnir role and the smith being named Mimir. Interestingly, in this version of the story, the shape-shifting is explicitly attributed to the use of sorcery, which tells me that it's an older text, probably. Or, sorry, um, a more recent text. Yeah, I was I was just about to disagree with you and go like, no, I feel like that's a more recent text. It's a more recent text, absolutely. The magic you can control is much more comfortable to deal with i don't actually have any citations to back that up it just feels like it's an older text where he changes just because of the horde 
then yeah. he changes using sorcery. Yeah, definitely. Which is very interesting. That would be that would be an interesting PhD for someone to pursue. <laughs> or at the very least an article. Mm-hmm. Daniel Savborg discussed two other examples of the shape-shifting motif. Bui from Jomsvikinga Saga and Thorir from Thorskfir Thinga Saga. Both Bui and Thorir turn into dragons to guard their horde, but unlike Fafnir, they are heroes. Savborg interprets this as, quote, a device that allows the saga authors to make a link between the heroic events of the distant past and the present day, when dragons, it is said, can still be seen. Thorir is depicted as greedy throughout his saga, whereas Bui is not. Which I think is a very, very interesting point, once more, because that sort of hoarding treasure idea is linked with bad taste and bad character. A good lord is a gold giver, not a gold hoarder. Which I think is one of the problems with um, Fedulf. Or was it was it Fedulf or Eik himself? Because didn't Eik have a very not-so-great death where he just got grumpy, buried his treasure, and died? Oh yeah, he totally did. Yeah, yeah. which is very draconic behavior of him. Uh, spoiler alert for <laughs> the series we're about to do. Yeah, sorry guys. Oops. To be fair, that's not a, uh, that's not the end of the saga. Well, no. Aik's saga goes way beyond Aik. All right, moving on. We can see that in temporary shape-shifting cases, the horde and mound motif is absent, and this suggests that such a motif embodies an inhuman desire for wealth, a lust for useless wealth. And this is linked to the temporary shapeshiftings of people who do it only once, or like Sigmund, who shapeshifts for a very temporary period of time and does not do so again, with the shapings, for instance. Dragons may not have much real use for all their wealth, wrote J.R.R. Tolkien about Smaug, his most detailed rendering of the hoarding rim theme. (laughs) He was likely echoing one of the old English maxims, which also stresses the futility of these expectations. He, that is, a dragon, must seek out a hoard in the earth where, old in winters, he guards heathen gold, though he is no better by it. It could be argued that such behavior is more inhuman than the barbaric, raw, meat-eating, blood-drinking cannibalism of the demonic Grimir or of Grendel, because it is not taboo-breaking and thus literarily taboo-reinforcing, but simply pointless from a human perspective. That interacts in an interesting way with the end of Beowulf, where mm-hmm. they rebury the gold, mm-hmm. and it specifically says that it's as useless as it ever was. Yes. Yeah, I love this paragraph, because it it does a good job of, of illustrating a lot of things that are unsaid in the sagas, unless you really start picking them apart, which is to say, what is being unsaid? The inhumanness of the people who turn into dragons, like Fafnir, makes them almost, almost wholly apart from humanity. Whereas creatures like Grimm or Grendel are sort of closer to being whole human-human beings. Right. As opposed to the scaly worms of non-human human beings that dragons are. Yeah, at least physically closer. Well, here's the thing. I think it's also behaviorally closer because, okay. and call me out here if I'm wrong, But Grendel, for instance, breaks into the hall. He wants to be a part of that society, and he can't be, so he destroys it. Whereas the dragon just sort of rampages around the countryside. 
his motivation is not known. But we know Grendel's motivation. We don't know what Grendel looks like, but we know Grendel's motivation. I don't know. I think Grendel's motivation is left kind of ambiguous. Is it? I thought it was because he was cast out. Because at the, at the beginning, it's it's Grendel's kin was cast out from society with all the right, trolls. You could, read the, you could read that into it, but it never specifically says that that's why he's... True. True. So again, this is why it's all fuzzy. <laughs> I've also heard the argument made that the reason Grendel is in is breaking into Heyerot and killing people is because Heyerot was built on land that's supposed to belong to Grendel's kin. Really? Like like it's outside the boundaries of civilization. Ooh. It's in the it's in a it's in the monster Realm. area. Yeah. I've never heard that one. I don't agree with it on first blush, but that's an interesting reading. Yeah, it lends itself well to some, like, post-colonial readings. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, othering and so on and so forth. Yeah. Ooh. But you are correct in that Grendel is definitely treated as being closer to human than the dragon. Mm-hmm. Like, Hrothgar complains that he doesn't pay the Ware Guild for the mm-hmm. people he kills. And so he's implicitly recognizing Grendel as More a type of human. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't think they ever demand Guild from the dragon. No, they never do. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. And the article goes on to sort of lean into that argument by saying, Moreover, I would argue that in practical terms, essence or nature often equates with function in this literature. And this is me talking now. I would go so far as to say that it doesn't just stand with the literature, but also reflects the belief systems of the culture itself not just the literature but Mm -hmm. maybe that's me making an extra dramatic point so anyway continuing on in other words that doing dragon-esque things is the same as being a dragon in much the same way that otir was an otter because he acted like one therefore such shape-shifting occurs as an extension of this lack of distinction and thus is not better understood as a biological mutation that is, a transformation based on change of natural biological traits, but instead as a sign of the essentially unstable way in which the literary existence of these beings was conceived, provoked by a certain agent. Now, I would go so far, Zoe would go so far as to say that it goes beyond how these beings were conceived literarily, but also literally in the medieval world. Because again, I stand by the idea that these people believed that these creatures existed. Maybe they're not around anymore. Maybe, you know, you don't see dragons anymore, but there were dragons. There are trolls in the hills. And therefore, this sort of dragon-esque behavior causes one to become a dragon is not just literarily true, but also literally true. And that's not the article saying this, that's me saying this. I'm going one step beyond, just to be totally clear. One of the reasons that I say this is because there are a number of other pieces of folklore elsewhere in the world where this motif is also seen, such as the Wendigo. The Wendigo is someone Mm -hmm. who is so greedy that they keep eating and eating and eating, and then they turn into a monster, and then they start eating people. And there are also native Alaskan myths that echo the same thing about people hunting too much and eating the food, but wasting some of it, and then turning into rabid dogs. Whole villages turning into rabid dogs or wolves. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so it, like, it's the greed turns you into something monstrous. Literally. And metaphorically, but also literally. Yes. 
Again, it's a shame it doesn't really work like that. You know? Mm. They believed it did. Or at least that's my argument. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be great. I, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> in the case of Fafnir, what provokes the change is the cursed treasure, which he covets. However, some medieval authors considered that the physical shape of the dragon was an important element of defining and categorizing them. When we look at medieval bestiaries, which often describe beasts by their physical traits, we observe a form of knowledge which is remarkably different from the post-Linnaean categorizations. The physical nature what constitutes nowadays as the domain of biological science, while important, was secondary to its moral meaning. And again, you'll be reminded by the Christmas episode we did with those crazy weird sermons where they're reading into biblical literature and saying, like, Christ was the shortest person to have existed and stuff. Oh, that's right! (laughs) (laughs) I had forgotten about that. Yeah. Classically, medieval people believed that there were different ways of reading into the Bible, and one of them was allegorical, one of them was moral, and one of them was literal. And all three of them are true. I'm not kidding. All three of them are true simultaneously. Yep. I thought it was four. I think there is a fourth one. I can't remember it. Because it's morally, literally, allegorically, and what else? I don't know. I. Oh, here we go. Literal, allegorical, moral anagogical, which apparently means what the passage tells us about our ultimate fate, according Ah. to this random FAQ I found. Cool. Oh, that detects allusions to the afterlife. Ah, I see. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, as this relates to Fafnir and dragons more broadly, this is to say, and we we can see this a little bit in Hildegard's Physica, not so much, but a little bit, when she describes things as being good for medicine, or when I don't remember what the animal was. Like, when the frog eats pure plants, it's a pure animal. And so you can use it. Oh, yeah. What was that? I don't I feel like it was the one we did most recently. Yeah, it was. (laughs) I don't remember either. So, once again, different stones have different moral qualities. Different animals have different moral qualities. I think it was in the 17 or 1800s, depending on where you had a mole on your face, showed a different character trait about you. The size of your head could, you know, tell different things, blah, 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 blah. So essentially what I'm saying here is becoming a dragon changes you physically and also represents you morally. Both are true Mm -hmm. simultaneously. And this is what they believed. We could interpret this change, that is the shape-shifting into a dragon, just as metaphor or allegory, but that would be anachronistic. In the Nordic societies of the drag of the Dragon Age. Wow. Yes, tell us about the Dragon Age. <laughs> Missed that one. In the Nordic societies of the Iron Age, which were likely already telling stories about Fafnir, as the Sigurdar picture stones suggest, uh, and that, that is a standing stone that has carvings of Fafnir's lay on it. And that has been dated to about 1000. But anyway, they suggest shape-shifting was dangerous and it was real. It was not just a symbolic action. I see no reason to imagine that this way of thinking would not have lingered on to some extent during the Middle Ages, at least for part of the population when recalling a heroic legend. So again, he sort of gets to my emphatic point here. Uh, (laughs) But I'm going to say it outright. Yes. So, we've talked about the dragon, we've talked about the shape-shifting. What about the horde? Because the horde makes the dragon, right? Here, he makes an argument that hordes and other magical items, or just important items, like a sword or 
a shaping or whatever, have a complex item biography, which is characteristic of important goods that regularly change hands. A good example in the Norse corpus is the sword Dragvandil. Its recurrent transfers embody the friendship between Erinbjorn and Eik and good ties between their families. The hoard represents the negative mirror image of this type of good. It appears as produced by no one and owned by no one, yet possessed by many, and it spreads disgrace to its possessors. Very similar associations appear in the language of hoarded treasure in Beowulf. That is interesting, the, the point that it's produced by no one, that it's just, it's already there, it's already... It's already somehow turned from a bunch of discrete articles of treasure into a collective noun by the time it arrives in the story. Exactly. So it's already a hoard, and the ring specifically has the gift of attracting more gold to it, which I think is fascinating. And so I know that I've talked about the economy of honor before, and this is the idea that through action and through gift giving, you can exchange honor. Again, this is the inverse of that. By taking the hoard, not giving it, but taking it, you are increasing disgrace, which I think is a beautiful balance to sort of see in the stories. It's yeah. just the inverse of values. Paul Beekman Taylor writes that there is a conventional stock of etymological associations between treasure goods and the life forces believed to reside in them, and these associations are discernible in the poetic style of Old English traditional poetry. The ideas surrounding the dragon horde in Beowulf and its equivalent in the Volsunga saga are very similar, comparing Fafnir's murderous theft of the gold which turns him into a dragon and the cursed nature of the Beowulfian dragon horde. Victoria Simmons summarizes that dragon treasure is a treasure that is hidden and secret, and at best redundant to human society, and at worst a source of significant menace. And then, going back to, since we've talked about the nature of shapeshifting as a dragon, as a both literal and moral subject, and then talked about the gold as being both metaphorically and literally channeling disgrace and not owned by anyone and sort of its own thing, when we start combining this, we start to see the character of the people who are attracted to hordes. And that can include heroes. So, quote, Fafnir is indeed dangerous and antisocial, but also a heinous criminal, a parasite, and a robber. His treasure is also rather strongly morally marked. By contrast, the treasure in Beowulf also appears cursed, not because it is taken away from its rightful owner, but because the last possessor of it would keep it from its intended use in the occupations of men. And thus the serpentine guardian in Beowulf can be seen as the embodiment of a cursed artifact. When Fafnir attains the Horde, it has been taken away twice from its rightful owners and kept from its intended use, cursed explicitly and prophesied to be harmful. This hints that it is perhaps the treasure and its loaded biography that transforms Fafnir. Even his own heinous deed appears partly as the effect of the compulsion to harm embodied by the Horde, which first affects his father, who realizes the gold paid to him by the gods is cursed. Immediately after, he refuses to share it with his sons, and thus makes Fafnir murder him. Uh, and then there's another example, I'm going to skip that one. Well, some victim blaming there makes Fafnir murder him. <laughs> True. It appears, ironically, a nature that is no comparison but causes isolation, promotes hiding rather than exhibition, and gives no joy to any owner who is used for it. So it's the nature of the gold itself. Furthermore, it is a gift that does not create social ties but destroys them. Symmetrically, this dragon is an effect of the cursed horde and of the deeds that the greed to keep it compelled their possessors to do. 
The dragon thus embodies the traits held by that same inversion inherent to the horde. And that is what I had for that article. I think it does a great job of breaking down the inner complexities and social ties Mm -hmm. of the culture at the time in a way that is more digestible to understand. You know, I wonder if the curse of the horde would be broken if you gave it away. Like, would it stop being cursed if, for example, you, like, just distributed it out That's a really charity? good question. I feel like that could work for Fafnir's horde. Like, I feel if you gave it in a lump sum, the person you give it to is likely to turn into a dragon themselves anyways. Right, but, right. Like, but if, if you, you distribute it. Yeah. I think you're probably right. I mean, even the horde for the Beowulf dragon. Or like, they just, say it has like, a curse on it. it. Yeah. Interesting. It's another point for the redistribution of wealth. For real, though. Wild. But yeah, so there you go. Uh, I had one more article. It's very, very short. It's just called The Changing Styles in Dragons from Fafnir to Smaug. And I'm not even going to read it, but it is accessible. And it just goes through some different dragon myths that you can check out if you want to read more. So the first one is Sigurd and Fafnir. Then we have Beowulf and the Fire Eater is what she calls it, which is great. Then St. George and the Dragon, and then The Reluctant Dragon, which is a fairy tale written by Kenneth Graham. And this is really cute. It's, we read it for class, actually. St. George is called on by villagers to fight the dragon, and he goes, and the dragon doesn't want to fight. And so it ends up flipping around the myth of the dragon and taming, if you will, George. And everyone comes together. So that's, it's really, really cute. That does sound cute. It, quote, sets the precedent for an introduction into written literature of dragons that are shy, helpful, and domestic. Then we have, of course, the Hobbit and Smaug. And then it talks a little bit about his son, Tolkien's son. But anyway, it's a cute article. Uh, If you want sort of a brief timeline of dragon myth, that's a good way to go. But I think we're about ready to go on to our segments, unless you have anything else to add. I do not. What say you? Best dialogue. Do him to death. (laughs) (laughs) Was that even dialogue or was that just a I think it was just part of the story. Do him to death. I really enjoy the bit where they go back and forth. The riddling part is very, very interesting to me and I like the back and forth there. I like it a lot, not because of like the content necessarily, but because it seems very... Like, it seems so strange. It seems Mm. like an intrusion from something else. Like, you don't expect it in the narrative. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it feels like it's something. I've been saying this a lot this episode, but it feels like it's some older thing from the oral tradition that's Mm. been retained. Definitely. Definitely. Which, again, I can't prove, but it's why I like it. It feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also touches back on the fact that even in this legend, you have the characters in the legend talking about even older lore. Who are the Norns? Do you know this piece of lore? Do you know that piece of lore? Do you have the Dinshanicus to sort of prove your worth? And I think I've said this before, but there are three good traits that make up a hero, particularly in the Viking sagas, but I, I think it is more universal than that. And that's being a poet, warrior, and magician. Mm-hmm. And here, particularly, we don't necessarily see magician here, but we do know that Sigurd or Siegfried or whatever has a very noble magical background. We see him being a good warrior in facing the dragon. And then we also see him 
acting as a poet and having power over his words through the sort of back and forth, even though he technically loses the back and forth with Fafnir by giving the dragon his name and therefore being cursed. Yes. Also, Fafnir doesn't ask him any questions, so... That's true. I think he loses the riddling by default. Yeah, that's fair. There was one at the end, right before Fafnir dies, that I really like. Let me see if I can find it. Is it, uh... Because this is is what I'm going to put forth as, as a suggestion. The sounding gold, the glow red wealth, and the rings thy bane shall be. I love that one. Yeah, I think that's it. Yep. That is really good. It's so good. I do enjoy in the prose version rather than the poetry version. Essentially, you can be brave without being without killing a man. Yeah. I really like that one. Yeah, it was... I think it was in the poetic version. Could be. I'm looking through the poetic version. I'm uh, looking for it. Oh, here we go. Here we go. It is in the poetic version, stanza 24. Unknown it is, when all are together, the sons of the glorious gods, who bravest born shall seem. Some are valiant, who redden no sword in the blood of a foeman's breast. Oh, yeah. You're right. It is. There it is. Yeah. That one's my favorite. All right. All right. Best death. I mean... We have two... There's... We've got two deaths here. Yeah, but... <laughs> but do we? Do we? I mean, the best death is obviously the killing of Fafnir. Even though, like, it's not a prolonged fight or anything, it's just a one stab, but... It's a pretty I think it's still stab. cooler than killing Reagan in his sleep. True. Chopped his head off. And plus, he went all the way up to the shoulder, which is pretty bad. And, like, I would say that it makes it cooler... It does make the killing in his sleep cooler that he then drinks Reagan's blood. I feel like we skimmed over that a little bit, but he totally does it. That's true. But he does that to Fafnir too, so. So, yeah. All in all, two cool deaths, but Fafnir still win. Yeah. Boom. All right. Bestiary. Well, we have a very obvious mythic critter here. Do we? Our boy Fafnir. Oh, of course. Do we count Autier, or does he just is he still a person? I'm not sure. I don't know how we classify him. I mean, if Fafnir is a non-human human being, then Otir has to be a non-human human being too. Theoretically, although it's not necessarily genetic. Yeah. But like, he does change into an otter, so that's at least an element of non-humanity. Oh, we've also got Anvari. Right, the dwarf. The dwarf slash pike. Right. We'll go with him. Otir can can stay human, but we'll go with the pike and the dragon. All right. All right. Adapting this for a D&D game, where to begin? Have you considered including a dragon? <laughs> Specifically a dragon that was once a human. That is cool. I think that would be underutilized because can't humans, or sorry, can't dragons in D&D 5e turn into people? Yes. So why not? Or at least they could in 3E. I assume right. they still can. So why not flip that around and have it be a human who transforms into a dragon? Because then all your players will want to be dragons. I guess. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's I a would great storytelling concept. Yeah. But I feel like putting it on the table for them would be like, oh, how much do I have to hoard? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'll be a murder hobo for that. You could, I guess you could try it. Drinking a dragon's blood to definitely cool be able to hear the speech of birds or understand the speech of birds or anything else maybe it grants various different types of knowledge just depending on what type of dragon it is or random chance or 
But drinking a dragon's blood to gain, like, secret knowledge is pretty cool. Yes. I also think you could use the cursed ring slash yes. the horde, but the ring is easier as a, as a magic item. It leads you to wealth, but all of the wealth is cursed. So it's a cursed item ring. This this feels very familiar. <laughs> this ring that, that brings you something good. Brings you but power, it's but it's curse. actually a curse. Yeah. I wonder. Oh my gosh. Oh, there was another one that popped into my head. Shoot. You could always do otter shapings. Shapings are always cool. Shapings are always cool. There should be more shapings. Although I feel like probably the reason there aren't is because druids have wild shape, but shapings are cool. Shapings there should are be cool. more shapings. I mean, you could use it really well in a low magic campaign. Yes, in a low magic campaign, it would be excellent. I think it would be interesting to have your players have to pay wear guild for someone they killed. Absolutely. 100%. Especially if it's an intelligent monster instead of another human being. That would be really good. Oh, oh, oh. A curse. If you tell somebody your name as they're dying, they can curse you. Or if they know your name and they speak it yeah. when they're dying, they can curse you. Yeah, the idea that a dying man can curse you is really good. 10 out of 10 would 100% use. Yeah, I have I have no comments or criticism. It's just, <laughs> it's just a really good curse. Yeah. I think those are all the ones that I thought of for this. You could you could play with the riddles idea or like speak to the dragon and, and ask for secret knowledge. Yeah. I feel like dragons having secret knowledge is A, a good idea, and B, probably already not uncommon given that dragons are in D&D tend to be long-lived and intelligent and probably have some secret knowledge. Absolutely. But like play that up a bit. Yeah, yeah, play with that. You could always have... The quest to save a maiden after killing the dragon, and then she turns out to be, like, a bad Valkyrie who doesn't actually need to be saved, because that's basically what happens in the next section. I endorse this. <laughs> All right, shall we move on? Sure. How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? In states unborn and echoes in modern culture. I feel like we covered a lot of those. I already talked about all of the films and the... Not all of them, actually. There's there's so many. But all dragon myth lore stuff that you know and love, aside from Asian dragons, basically comes from this. Not quite all of it, but a lot. Yeah, most of the Western dragon tradition pretty much traces to here. Yep. I mean, you've got Gilgamesh. There's a dragon in Gilgamesh, so that's the oldest one, technically. But, you know. But since most of our high fantasy is based on Tolkien, and Tolkien based his stuff here. Exactly. Fair enough. Speaking of fantasy authors, I'm going to have to caveat this reference. <laughs> but in the Dresden Files books, wizards can give a death curse to the person who kills them. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. I have read the Dresden Files books, but I am not hugely a fan of them because someone pointed out the amount of male gaze in them to me, and that's G-A-Z-E, and <laughs> I've I haven't been able to see anything else from them since. Yeah, that was me with Name of the Wind, which I can't stand. Like, it's fine as long as you read it as a, like, as a male power trip fantasy. Because that's, I've that's never read it. all that it is. It's... You know the trope of women either being, like, beautiful, innocent maidens or, like, absolute whores in the scum of the earth? Yeah, the Madonna whore complex. Yes, it is that. That is ah, it. I'm probably not going to read it then. It's... Mm, mm. I, I had problems with it. His magic system is pretty cool. 
but I, it was overshadowed by the uh, the male male gaze. There is one more. You'll have to plug this in for me. There's one more modern culture one that I forgot about, which is a character in a game that my partner loves called Fate, which is where they just take all of the heroes from every story ever, like all of them, and they all exist in one universe and they're champions of people who can use magic, essentially. That's what I understand about it. Siegfried is one of them. And so in the beach episode, I'm sorry, in the Las Vegas beach episode that they have. He, this is a game? Yes, it's it's a narrative game. Anyway, in the Las Vegas beach episode, they have Siegfried's like intro is a swimming pool, huh? My experiences with water haven't been altogether pleasant, but I suppose they don't need to know that right now. Which is a reference to his drowning and his death. <laughs> Of course. Which I just really appreciate that this, like, Japanese RPG has done the research enough to, like, reference his drowning, but also make him, like, a fiery, silver-haired anime boy with a glowy- with glowy chest tattoos. Like, it just- I am so perplexed by this game. But anyway, that is the other Echo in Modern Culture that I just wanted to shout out, because that came up today. All right. I'll try and remember to move that to the appropriate place. All right. The Tolkien Tally. The Tolkien Tally. Cool. I'm going to try and run this off. Go for Here it. Here we go. Okay. So we've got the ring. We've got the dragon riddle game. We've got the ring falling off into a river or being found in a river. We've got the ring providing a gift at a big cost. We've got slaying a dragon, uh, but that's pretty broad. We, more specifically, this is a Silmarillion reference. Here I go. Turin Turambar stabs from the stomach a big dragon named Glaurung underneath and kills it in the same way that Sigurd does. So we've got that one. Oh. I'm not even going to include name swords because that's too generic. Talking dragons? Does that count? Smagging, smout, smag. <laughs> Smaug and Glaurung both talk, so I'm going to include that one. Gold greed, the gold lust, the gold sickness. Oh, yes. Because Thorin. Gold sickness in the line of Dvalin. Yeah. Oh, we've got Dvalin, too. But it's not in the line of Dvalin. It's in the line of Durin? Durin, technically, yeah. But yeah, Durin got gold sickness. And he lusted after it, and he lusted after the Arkenstone, and they hoarded their gold, and it attracted Smaug, essentially. So yeah, there's at least ten references. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving onward. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. There's there's no food except for roasted dragon heart. Yeah, I was going to say, there's definitely Roasted Dragon Heart. Roasted Dragon Heart. All right. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Terminology from this text. A drad. A drad. That's a good one. Lingworm oh. was one of them. Was that in here? Yeah. Uh, let's see. How sayest thou, Regan, that this drake was of no greater than other lingworms? Methinks the track of him is a marvelous great. Oh, yeah, I remember that now. Lingworm, which I've also seen as Lind, Lindworm, or Ling. Yeah, worm. that one I've seen. Yeah. Ooh, the red gold vibes. Ah, glow red wealth. 
That's just a great phrase. I also think that Regan is a great name to use. Sigurd is a little... I don't know. I think it could work. You could have, you could have yeah. any number of people named Sigurd. I'm sure there are still people named Sigurd. Oh, absolutely. Sigurd says that his name initially is the Noble Heart. Yes, which is Heart, H-A-R-T, by the way, listeners. Yes. We've got any one of these cool names and the names of the swords. Those are fun. If you can sneak in and do it to death, I salute you. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that one. And you can use uh, Anvari. It's the technical name of the ring. Anvaranaut. Anvaranaut. Ah, that means Andvari's gift. Yes. So you can use that cool magic item. There you go. Also a term to play with. I think that's that. Naming things uh, the gift of the person you took it from is also pretty cool. It's pretty bad. All right. Street smarts. What are we learning? Don't kill random animals. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't kill random animals. Probably don't hoard your wealth. Yeah, don't hoard your wealth. Come on, people. Give graciously. Be a good ringlord. Yes. If you kill a dragon, just, you know, a drop of its blood will do. You get your get your magic titmouse speak powers. Right. But you should eat the whole heart anyway, just because. Just because, just in case. How, how often are you going to be able to say that you ate a dragon's heart? Much you less might as slayed well do it. it. Yeah. Don't kill your family for gold. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory. To be fair, this was an inheritance problem. So, like, watch your inheritances, people, and, like, chill. Was that also Regan's motivation to betray Sigurd as he was just going to take all the gold? Yes. Yes, it was. I wasn't 100% clear on what his deal was. Sigurd is killing Fafnir on Regan's behalf. And the whole time Regan was plotting to kill Sigurd to make sure he didn't take the gold. Because he gotcha. had the gold sickness. Makes sense. Yeah. If you or a family member are suffering from gold sickness, contact your local wizard. Or your local charity. <laughs> that too. Oh boy. All right. Best moment. What is the best moment in this entire thing? I mean, maybe this is just me, but I'm always charmed by when the birds just start talking to him. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not even talking to him. They're talking about right, him. Right, about him. They're the peanut gallery in this entire thing. But like that just abrupt moment where we're like, hmm, oh, I burnt my tongue. Am I hearing birds? Are the birds, Those are the birds, birds. Are speaking English? <laughs> or Norse. Norse. <laughs> I agree with that. That's pretty good. I also like the moment when Regan pops up and Sigurd's like, what the hell, bro? You left me high and dry here. I was, I was fighting a dragon that was way bigger than you said. And he's like, um, I made the sword. What more do you want from me, man? It's your quest. I thought that was a good point. Like, it is a good he point. He did his job. Yeah. He's a master smith. What more do you want from the guy? The court. Who's human enough to include in this court? That is a good question. I mean, normally our line is mortal. True. Which would mean that everyone except the gods would count. Yes, that's true. All right, you go first. Slim pickings. Yeah, but they're they're all good pickings. True. Like, all right. So the way I see it, there are four good options. Okay. There's Otter. Mm-hmm. It's just cool that he turns into an Otter. I like it. There's Reagan. He's a master smith. Mm-hmm. But he's apparently sketchy, so he might make maybe you can't trust him. True. Sigurth, dragon slayer. Pretty dope. Dies Fafnir, by drowning. Fafnir, dragon. Fafnir, dragon. Also, Envari. That's true. Envari is on is. 
he's an option. I wouldn't say he's a good option. He's not on my list. But <laughs> he's an option. He's an option. I will take Sigurd because I expect that you are going to take Fafnir, and so I want the person who can canonically defeat Fafnir. Okay, fair enough. I was actually going to take Sigurd, so now that oh. you've taken him from me, it's either Fafnir or Regan. They're both terrible people. Master Smith, Dragon. Master Smith, Dragon. Master. Okay, do I have another Smith? That's what I want to know. I've got an Artificer. And a Potter. And I've got Melio. He's pretty cool. And a Dragon. Do I already have a Dragon? I do! Well, technically a Naga. A Naga. Okay, I already have a dragon. I will take... No, oh, I want the dragon. I'll take Fafnir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, alright. I want the dragon. I was amazed that wasn't already your plan. I was like, <laughs> obviously Zoe's gonna take Fafnir. I'm obviously. gonna take the dragon. Final rating. I mean, it's tough because it's a classic, but it's also hard to read, but also that's probably the translation. Yeah, that's that's true. Or at least for the prose version, that's the translation. For the poetic version, I'm sure that it's still hard to read. It's always hard to read. Mm. There are there are good penguin classics if you are looking to purchase a good translation of the Volsunga Saga or the Ede. Alright, I'm comparing it in my mind to what what I'm using as like my ten benchmark, which is Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. That's right. I feel like it's not quite that good, but it's close in terms of being a classic. So I'm gonna give it a nine and a half. Alright. That's that's pretty high. It's very good. It is very good. It's fun. This I, I like the folkloric motifs. There's some really good folklore motifs. And honestly, once you understand the background, reading it is short, simple, and sweet. It does not take that long. I'll match you. I'll match you. 9.5. It's a solid text. Yeah. All right. Like, I, I feel like its its downsides are all like, I would like there to be more of it. Yes. I would like there to be more detail. I would like there to be more stuff going in here. I would like Fafnir to have more of a death scene than just being stabbed and then having a conversation while he bleeds out. Yes. 100%. And to be fair, all of all of the essence of what this text is has given it a life long beyond any of the other tales. The fact that some guy made a six-hour German opera about this, like... It's Wagner, right? Yes. <laughs> Just making sure I knew who you were calling some guy. Yeah, but who's going to sit through a six-hour opera? Opera fans. I guess. I mean, to be fair, if it were about a dragon, I too would sit through a six-hour opera. I mean, have you never done a Lord of the Rings marathon? That's way more than six hours. Yeah, yeah, pr yeah, Professor Hughes had us watch all of them, all of the extended editions. Yep. It was a class requirement. My uh, medievalist professor in undergrad did the same thing, not as a class requirement, just as a thing he did every year in which he'd, he'd rent the theater uh, for a, a day and just show all the extended editions back to back. That's amazing. Or the theater, the like auditorium, the place where you do... The big announcement things, yes. Yeah. That's great classics there's a reason that lord of the rings that's that's substantially more than six hours so i can see someone sitting through a six hour opera if they like opera. that's fair that's very true it's yeah like there's a reason that lord of the rings is a classic and it's because the lay of fafnir is a classic like the only issue i have with it is that it's so boiled down mm -hmm. but all of the stuff that's left is good yes i mean that's why the volsunga saga expanded it and then so on and so forth yeah. A little bit. 
The rest of it is good, too. Okay, shall we go on to the leech's corner? Welcome to the Leech's Corner. Alright, so this is again from Leech Book 3. For cheek disease, take the whorl, that's W-H-O-R-L, with which a woman spinneth, bind it on the man's neck with a woolen thread, and swill him on the inside with hot goat's milk. It will be well with him. So a spindle. I think it's the thing the spindle goes in. Like the donut thing. Oh, so you tie that to a man's cheek and then swirl hot goat's milk in his mouth. Yes. What is, what is cheek disease? Do we do we know? Uh, any disease of the cheek. But yeah, and then he has to swish around hot goat's milk like it's Listerine, I think is what that's implying. It continues for more cheek problems. Okay, let's go. For jowl pain, delve up way broad before the rising of the sun. Way broad is, I think, a plant. Bind upon the man's neck. I wonder if that reduces swollen lymph nodes. That could be the thought, that there's some, that you've got, like, hmm. Either inflammation or swollen lymph nodes or something that would make the jaw hurt. I can see that. Again, for the same thing. Burn a swallow to dust and mingle him with field bees' honey. Give the man that to eat frequently. I feel like that's sad. You're making this face, but I know you eat birds. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Swallows are just so pretty. (laughs) That's true, they are. (laughs) I have never felt bad about eating bacon ever since I learned that, given the opportunity, hogs will eat people. Yeah, I think we've talked about it before. I think so. Basically permission. It freaks me out. It freaks me out. It would eat you. Yeah, it's fair game. Hogs Hogs would eat bacon. True. They don't even wait for it to be cooked. Hogs are nasty, man. One thing that I did not learn about living in Texas is that if you are driving through West Texas, you do not stop. And if your car breaks down, you do not get out of the car. You call for help and you wait because there are feral wild hogs out there that will destroy you and your car. I believe that. I mean, I've definitely heard that there are lots, that there's a feral hog problem in Texas. I just did not know that they were that aggressive. I mean, that's why boar spears have those, like, crossbars on them, because it'll keep charging after you spear it. Yes, yes, it will. And, I mean, what's really the difference between a feral hog and a wild boar? There's not. There's really not. But, anyway, okay, so, swallows, ashes, and honey. Yes. And you eat it? Yes, you give the man that to eat frequently. Okay. Well, honey has antibiotic properties, doesn't it? Or am I making that up? No, we've looked it up before for pretty much the same reason. It's used in a lot of remedies in the leech book, and it's probably because it has antibiotic properties. Makes sense. That's the whole thing, by the way. I I don't have another bit. I was waiting for another. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's all. Okay. Three items. Three items. We're already at two and a half hours. I didn't want to do a long one. That's fair. Well, I like the spindle one. Next time that you have cheek pain, try it. Let us know. Yeah. If you have a spindle that requires a whorl, whorl. A whorl? That's such a hard word to say. Whorl. Yeah. That is a weird word. Whorl. Yeah, it just sounds weird coming out of my mouth. Okay. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed learning about Fafnir the dragon. Make sure that you identify any non-human human beings in your life. And keep an eye on Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and the rest. Yeah, any day now. They're going to turn into dragons. We'll see. And remember, once they do, you can slay them. <laughs> Technically, you could slay them now, but you'd probably get in legal trouble. Yeah. You can legally slay dragons. Yes. Hunting season. And then eat their hearts. Then eat their hearts. Boom. Whether or not they're a dragon. They have to be non-human human beings, right? 
I wouldn't just want to eat like a human heart. Well, you cook it first. That doesn't make it better. Okay, we need to stop. Oh my gosh, I'm turning off. But is eat the rich not supposed to be literal? Oh my gosh. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. I wasn't 100% clear on what his deal was. Yeah, he, he wanted the gold. Yeah, because he was going to kill... Sigurd was going to kill Fafnir. You hearing that? I am hearing like that. That is a lot seconds. of thunder. It's going to be a spooky episode. <laughs> wow. Okay. Go off. <laughs>